Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. What's up, guys? Welcome into episode 24 or season 2, episode 4 of the Knowledge of the Couch podcast. My name is Kyle, still your host after all this time. Guys, what's up? This is the episode that will mark an end to our first foray into this slightly new format that we've been doing. This is going to be the uh, final episode of our Black History Month series where we cover different figures of black history. And very unfortunately, this episode is not going to be nearly as uh, heartening or positive as the other ones have been. And I I do this intentionally because I feel like this episode that we're about to do is an important exploration into why these sort of things that we are doing are important. Why celebrating figures in black history and why... Bringing up black culture is important, especially in American society. Today, we're going to talk about the story of Emmett Till. Now, if you're not familiar with that name, um, it's not entirely surprising. It is a fairly well-known story of uh, violence against black people in the South, although it was more of a thing when it happened and then when you know the 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 trial and everything sort of resurfaced in uh, a later time a few decades later it became popular again but for the most part people listening nowadays we're still you know we're decades then removed from that trial that action so when you're listening now or when you're thinking now about this sort of thing it, it's sort of you know gone under the waves so to speak so it's um it's a story i think really people need to hear because it shows, even in the 1950s America, which is really not that long ago, even in 1950s America, we were so behind and so backwards in treating people, citizens of this country, treating people like pieces of garbage just because of the way they were born. It's it's incredibly un-American and incredibly terrible, yet... It was happening then, and honestly, it still happens today, which is why, as I said before, it's important to talk about these sort of things. It's important to bring these things up and show, you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt that these things did happen, that they, despite their, you know, preposterousness, despite the the audacity of it all, still happened, and why it's important to, to bring these things to light so that we, you know, Try not to let these things happen anymore. That's the whole point of history, right? That's the whole thing when people say to me or people say in, in, in general, oh, I hate history. I It's boring. Uh, I don't like listening to it. I don't like talking about it. I don't care about history. History is stupid, boring, stuffy. Who gives a shit? Well, if you're a person in general, you should give a shit. And the reason you should give a shit is because if you don't look at where human beings were, then you can never get past 
that and make human beings better in the future. Because people, despite all of the the hubris we have about our intelligence versus other you know species on this planet, however much gall we have, however much arrogance we have for having a highly evolved brain, we sure do look like stupid fucking idiots sometimes because we repeat ourselves over and over again. The human condition, for the most part, is cyclical. Now, it doesn't have to be because humans are smart enough to change their ways. They are smart enough to do things differently than they have in the past. Yet, for some reason, people act as if they're the same as they were a thousand years ago, 10,000 years ago. You know, people just continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over again because they don't respect the institution of history. They don't respect looking back and seeing, oh, well, that's interesting. Maybe we shouldn't do the dumb shit that we used to do because look at how dumb it was. That's all it is. That's all you have to do is look back, be introspective, and find your reasons why you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. And history is the key to all of that. So this episode is going to be a little more focused on looking back at a story and telling ourselves how did this happen, why did it happen, and how can we make it so stuff like this doesn't happen anymore. So today's episode is going to be about the murder of Emmett Till. start our foray into a true crime podcast. Not really. This is just the story of Emmett Till and his untimely murder and how it shaped uh, the civil rights movement thereafter. So Emmett Till, a young man, born uh, July 25th of 1941 in Chicago, Illinois. Now, Emmett's mom, uh, Mamie Carthan, was born in Webb, Mississippi. Now, Webb, Mississippi is part of the uh, Mississippi Delta region, uh, a watershed region down in in Mississippi where the Mississippi River has since widened up as it travels from its north, uh, the, the beginning of the river in the north, down south towards the Gulf of Mexico. The Delta region is where the river basically opens up completely uh, into what would be very good, excellent, farmland and a very uh, prosperous area in terms of, you know, anything that you can grow because it's the watershed of a gigantic river. Uh, Emmett never lived in the Mississippi area uh, because Mamie, his mom, moved up to Argo, Illinois, as part of what was called the Great Migration of Rural Black Families out of the South uh, when Jim Crow laws and other, you know, sort of... uh, segregation type laws that states were coming up with became more popular. So she moves up to Argo, Illinois. Now Emmett uh, lives in Argo, Illinois with his mom and maybe is uh, married to a man named Louis 
until uh, this marriage goes on for a little while until Lewis becomes very abusive to Mamie and she decides to split up with him. He gets in trouble and then Lewis is then given a choice between going to jail or to join the army and enlist in uh, the fight in World War II since it was uh, 1942 when their marriage dissolved and then (laughs) goes to war and is executed by the U.S. Army in 1945 after having been found guilty of murder and rape. So not a great end for Emmett Till's father, Lewis, and this basically drives uh, Emmett, young Emmett, and his mother, Mamie, to move to Detroit, where she can uh, find some more work or some better work and get away from the situation she had been in. They move up to Detroit, and they live there for a little while, where Mamie meets another guy named Pink Bradley. Now, they lived together with him for a while, but for reasons unknown, uh, her marriage then dissolves with this man as well. Also during this time, around the age of six, Emmett had contracted polio, which, as we discussed in the smallpox episode just a week ago, polio was rampant at this time as well. Now, very luckily for Emmett, the polio only really left him with uh, a persistent stutter. So uh, a, a character thing, a character attribute to him that very likely played into uh, how he would be treated later on down the line. Eventually... Mamie and Emmett move back to Chicago because Emmett liked it there a lot more than he liked it in Detroit. So they move back to Chicago and they live together in a busy neighborhood on Chicago's south side. Uh, Mamie begins working for the U.S. Air Force as a civilian clerk, hopefully to earn some more money. Uh, Emmett was was a good boy at home. He did his chores. He was kind of a rambunctious kid, but who isn't when they're, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old? Um... Later on, in 1955, now this is going to be sort of the beginning of the downward spiral that would consume Emmett Till. So all this all this time, really his story has never been much beyond, you know, a fairly normal tale. You know, he's, he's born, he's raised with his mom, um, mom and dad don't get along, they get divorced, and they move around and then end up back where he kind of feels comfortable, and he's kind of living a pretty normal life normal life, uh, lives in a, like a two bedroom little apartment with his mom in the South side of Chicago. I mean, really not anything out of the ordinary. Uh, in 1955, a man named Mose Wright comes up to visit Mamie and Emmett. Now Mose is, um, one of the uncles of Emmett and he's from Mississippi, pretty much around where Mamie is from. And he's telling Emmett all these stories about where he's from, about the Mississippi Delta, you know, putting a very positive spin on it because that's his home. And he's telling his nephew, Emmett, about how cool his home is. And then Emmett very much wants to go down and visit his, you know, I guess you could call his ancestral home, his home where his mom is from. He wants to go down and see it for himself. His mom is really not into the idea at all, but after a while of Emmett begging and begging and wanting to go, she finally relents. So, Mose, right, the man in question here, the uncle, uh, accompanies Till with another cousin named Wheeler Parker and another guy named Curtis Jones, who would soon join them, to go down to Mississippi. Um, they didn't go down to uh, Money, Mississippi, which is uh, a small Delta town in the, the Mississippi area, and 
that's where our story is you know, going to begin to unfold. Now, before Emmett had departed for the Delta, his mother had cautioned him, you know, in, a, in the, the worst kind of foreshadowing ever. His mother had cautioned him that Chicago and Mississippi were two very different worlds and that he should know how to behave in front of whites in the South. Now, that's the unfortunate part of our history, that that had to be something that Emmett's mom had to tell him that, hey, you know, Things are different in the South. You know, it's, it's, it's tough enough up here in Chicago for for black people. But if you go to the South, you better be, you know, prepared to know how to behave in front of white people. Uh, Emmett being, I'm assumingly, he's only 14 at the time. Assumingly, you know, he assures her that he understands. But assumingly, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. I mean, he's just a young kid. How could you possibly get the gravity of the situation, despite you know what your mother is telling you, uh, that that you need to know when it comes to visiting a place that's so starkly different from the place that you're used to living in Chicago, Illinois. Now, as as a little bit of an aside, before we get into the rest of the story, there were statistics collected on lynchings, uh, and those basically began to be collected in in around the eighteen the early eighteen eighties. And since that time, up to the point that we're talking about in the story, more than 500 African Americans had been killed by extrajudicial violence, meaning vigilantes or lynching type situations in just Mississippi alone, and more than 3,000 across the entire, you know, traditional South, the entire um, Reformation, you know, Confederate type state areas where this took place. Most of those incidents took place between 1876 and 1930. And though they became a lot less common in the 1950s, they still did happen. Uh, everywhere in the South, you would find you know white people publicly prohibiting interracial relationships, and it was co- sort of a means to maintain that that uh, sense of white supremacy, that sense of we are above you, and we still make the rules, you guys, despite you know the darn pesky aggressive Northerners trying to take the the, the power out of our hands. We still we still make the rules. Um, you'd even see the suggestion of sexual contact between black men and white women carrying severe penalties for black men, often, you know, lynchings and death. Um, these tensions then really increase after the uh, Supreme Court decision uh, that we have mentioned a couple times before during this month, the uh, 1954 Brown versus the Board of Education decision, which ended segregation in public education, which that decision had ruled as unconstitutional. Now, a lot of these segregationists in the South believe that the ruling would lead, weirdly, to interracial dating and marriage. Like, oh boy, oh no, the the the, the black kids and the white kids are going to go to school together, and all of a sudden we're just going to have all kinds of interracial dating and marriage. Oh my God, fetch my fainting couch. Like, okay, clutch pearls and let's freak out about it. So a lot of people in the South, whites being the majority of them, strongly resisted the court's rulings. And actually, in, in, in one Virginia county, they closed all their public schools to prevent integration. Other jurisdictions just were ignoring the ruling. They didn't give a shit because that's what people do. Uh, and in other ways, whites were using stronger measures to keep the black people in the South politically disenfranchised, which they'd already been doing anyway. But hey, might as well turn the volume up to 11 when we can. And also, interestingly enough, and maybe a bit of foreshadowing as well, a week before Emmett Till arrives in Mississippi, a black activist named Lamar Smith was shot and killed in front of a county courthouse in the town of Brookhaven, 
for organizing politically. Three white people were arrested and all of them were released. Sound familiar? We're going to get into even more of that type of nonsense bullshit behavior as we continue going forward with Emmett's story. Now, Till arrives in Money, Mississippi on August 21st of 1955. On August 24th, three days later, he and his cousin Curtis Jones skipped church where his great uh, uncle Mose Wright was preaching. Now, Mose Wright was a part-time preacher, gaining him the nickname Preacher, hey. And they then went and joined some local boys as they went to Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market to buy candy. You know, things that fucking teenagers do in the 50s. Push push a, a metal wheel down the street with a stick. That's one thing you do when you're a kid in the 50s. And then get together with your bros, get together with your boys, and go buy fucking candy at the store. Okay. So these teenagers, a lot of these teenagers that Emma was hanging out with were the children of sharecroppers, sharecroppers being basically the new version of slavery in the South. And while it wasn't actually slavery because there was you know, freedom and money to be made, they were basically pushed into what amounted to indentured servitude on white people's lands, and that was really the only way they could make ends meet, was picking cotton all day in fucking fields just like their grandparents did, you know? So anyhow, this market in the town that they were going to get their candy um, served usually the local sharecropper population. It was owned by a white couple, 24-year-old Roy Bryant and his 21-year-old wife, Carolyn. Carolyn was alone in that store that day. Her sister-in-law was at the rear of the store watching children. Jones left Till with the other boys while Jones played checkers across the street, Curtis Jones being his cousin. Now this this is the 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 crossroads point, the really important um pinpointed time on where Emmett Till's fate would be decided and this is where accounts of what happened next were really sketchy. Now, according to Curtis Jones, his cousin, the other boys were reporting that Till, Emmett Till, had a photograph of his integrated class at the school that he was at in Chicago, and Till was bragging to the boys um, that the white kids in the picture were his friends, and then he points to a white girl in the picture, and they said that this white girl... um, you know, was his girlfriend and that they were dating each other, which, as we just mentioned about two, three minutes ago, you know, the whole aspect and idea of interracial dating in the South especially was was a big, fat no-no. Um, eventually, it goes on that this account may have been uh, a bit fabricated by Jones, but at the time, this doesn't matter. According to some other versions of what may have happened at the time, including comments from some of the kids standing outside the door. People said that Emmett Till uh, may have quote-unquote wolf-whistled at Bryant, or catcalling, or whatever you would like to call it. Uh, Bryant being Carolyn Bryant, the 21-year-old wife excuse me, of Roy Bryant, the owners and proprietors of the grocery store. Now, it's later uh, uh, recounted by a newspaper account that stated that uh, Till would sometimes whistle to alleviate that polio, you know, stricken stuttering that he had. Um, His speech was sometimes a little unclear, and his mom, Mamie, said that he had particular difficulty with pronouncing B sounds, B as in Bob, and he may have whistled to overcome problems asking for things like bubble gum. 
She said that to help with his articulation, she taught Till how to whistle softly to himself before pronouncing his words. So even if this was something that happened, it was very unlikely that it was something where uh, Emmett was, you know, whistling or catcalling at Carolyn Bryant and probably more likely a, a way to lessen his own anxiety for his stuttering problem that he very much knew that he had and he very much didn't like having. Later on during the trial that we'll talk about in a second, Carolyn Bryant testified that Emmett Till actually grabbed her hand while she was stalking Candy and said, quote, how about a date, baby? She said that after she freed herself from his grasp, the young man followed her to the cash register, grabbed her waist then, and said, what's the matter, baby? Can't you take it? Brian said that she freed herself, and then Till said, you needn't be afraid of me, baby, used one unprintable word, and said, I've been with white women before. Carolyn Bryan also alleges during her account at the trial that one of Till's companions, one of the boys that he had been hanging out with, came into the store, grabbed Till by the arm, and ordered him to leave. So basically, Carolyn Bryant's account says that, you know, he came up to her, grabbed her, told her, hey baby, I date white women, what up? And then after she's like, no, you can't do that, walks to the cash register, he grabs her again, this time by the waist, even more intimate than grabbing her by the hand, and saying, come on, you know, what? you can't take it? And it's like... Just knowing this kid, he's a 14-year-old, stuttering, shy boy, and all of a sudden he becomes this, like, this, like, rapey Don Juan. It's, it's you know, when you look at it from this perspective of, of, of you know, it's being in the past, and you're above the situation, you look at it and go, that's fucking dumb. Who would ever believe her? You have to remember the foreboding message from Emmett Tell's mother, you have to behave differently in the South or you have to understand how things work in the South because it isn't like it is up here in Chicago. So no matter what happened, and honestly, at this point, nobody really has a good recollection of what happened. But nevertheless, at this point, Carolyn Bryant goes to try to retrieve a gun under the seat of a car. The teenagers, um, Till and his friends, see this, and they decide to leave immediately. Obviously, when you think about it, Till probably doesn't know what the hell is going on. He sees this crazy white lady going and trying to grab uh, a gun, and he's like, well, fuck this, I'm out. This is just too crazy. At this point, uh, people seem to think that Till had then whistled while Brian was going to the car, but that's disputed as to whether Till actually whistled towards Bryant or toward a checker game that was going on across the street, the checker game that his cousin Curtis Jones was taking place in. So then one of the other boys runs across the street to tell Curtis what had happened in the store. When the older man that Curtis was playing checkers with hears the story, he then urges the boys that they need to leave quickly because he's afraid that violence is going to break out. Carolyn Bryant then goes back into the store, tells others of the events, and then the story spreads like wildfire. Curtis Jones and Emmett Till declined to tell their great-uncle Moe's right, fearing that they would actually get in trouble from Moe's. Till then says that he wants to return home to Chicago. Obviously, he's like, fuck this place. This sucks. I want to go back to my home. And at this point... Uh, Roy Bryant, the husband of Carolyn Bryant, was on an extended trip hauling shrimp in Texas and wasn't going to return home until August 27th. Now it's August 24th at the time 
of the incident. Well, August 27th comes around, and Carolyn, not surprisingly, tells Roy about what happened to her, and Roy Bryant goes into a fucking rage. He then aggressively questions several young black men who had entered the store, trying to figure out who it was that did this to his wife. He then takes another black man named J.W. Washington, and they approach a black teenager walking along the road. Bryant grabs this kid with uh, J.W. Washington. They bring him back to their grocery store and ask Carolyn, hey, is this the guy who did this to you? She denies it because it's not Emmett Till. Uh, And then after this all goes down, Roy grabs his buddy, uh, J.W. Millum, and a couple other uh, black guys that they are basically forcing into this lynching. And they hop in his pickup, and they head towards Moe's Wright's house. Now, they head towards Moe's house because Carolyn Bryant had mentioned hearing that the boy was from Chicago and knowing that they were from Chicago and that they were staying with a guy named Preacher Moe's Wright. They go, oh, hey, we should pop over there and see what's up with that shit. So... In the early morning, about 2 to to 3.30, somewhere on August 28th, the next day, um, Roy Bryant, uh, J.W. Millam, and then Carolyn Bryant drive to Moe's Wright's house. Millam was armed with a pistol and a flashlight. He then goes and asks Moe's if he had three boys in the house from Chicago. Till was sharing a bed with another cousin at the time, and there were eight people in the small two-bedroom cabin. Millam then asks Wright to take them to the N-word that did the talking. Till's great aunt offers the men money, but they refuse, wanting to get Till himself. So Millam rushes into the house and tells Emmett, hey, put on your fucking clothes. Moe's Wright then informs the men that Till was from up north, and he doesn't know any better. Millam reportedly then asks, quote, how old are you, preacher? To which Wright responded, 64. Millam threatened that if Wright told anybody, he wouldn't live to see 65. The men, now having dressed Emmett Till, march him out to the truck and ask Carolyn Bryant whether this was the young man who had accosted her, and she responds in the affirmative. So, now that they have their guy, they tie up Till in the back of a green pickup truck, and they drive towards Money, Mississippi. Uh, They take him back to uh, Bryant's Groceries to drop off Carolyn Bryant, and then they grab the, the, the two aforementioned black men, two men named... Henry Lee Loggins, and then Leroy, quote, Too Tight Collins, which is a fucking weird nickname to have. They then take him uh, tied up in the back of their pickup, and they drive toward a barn in Drew, Mississippi. During the transit, they pistol whip the shit out of Emmett Till on the way, reportedly knocking him completely unconscious. A man named Willie Reed, who was a, uh, a, a a standby man, a passerby, had heard beating and crying from the barn. He then told a neighbor, and they both walked back up the road to a water well, which is near the barn, where they were approached by J.W. Millam. Millam asked if they had heard anything. Reed responded, no. Others passed by the shed and heard yelling. A local neighbor also spotted Leroy, too tight, Collins, at the back of the barn, washing blood off the truck and noticed Till's boot. Millam explained that he had killed a deer and that the boot didn't belong to anybody but him. In an interview later on, Bryant and Millam said that they had intended to beat Till and throw him off an embankment into the river to frighten him. What a way to frighten somebody, right? What a way to frighten someone. 
they told the interviewer that while they were beating Till, he had called them bastards, declared he was as good as they, oh, how dare he, and say that he had sexual encounters with white women. They then put Till in the back of their truck, drove to a cotton gin to pick up a 70-pound fan, uh, the only time they admitted actually being worried because they were close to sunrise and they were worried that somebody was going to spot them and not and not accuse them of killing somebody, but accuse them of stealing the fan from the cotton gin and then drove several miles along the river looking for a place to dispose of Emmett Till. They then shot him in the head by the river and weighted his body with the fan. Moe's right, uh, his uncle, stayed on his front porch for nearly 20 minutes waiting for Till to return. He didn't go back to bed. He and another man then went into Money, Mississippi, got gasoline, and drove around trying to find Emmett Till. Unsuccessful, obviously, they returned home by 8 a.m. After hearing from Wright that he would not call the police because he feared for his life, Curtis Jones then placed a call to the LaFleur County Sheriff and another to his mother in Chicago. At this point, uh, Roy... Bryant and J.W. Millen were then being questioned by the LaFleur County Sheriff George Smith. Now, they admitted they had taken the boy from his great-uncle's yard, but claimed that they had released him the same night in front of the Bryant's grocery store. Roy Bryant and Millen were then arrested for kidnapping. Word then gets out that Till was missing, where soon Medgar Evers, which is the Mississippi uh, State Field Secretary for the NAACP, and Amzie Moore, who is the head of the Boulevard County chapter of the NAACP, excuse me, became involved. They then disguised themselves as cotton pickers. They go into town and they try to find out more information that might help them find the missing Emmett Till. Three days later, after his abduction and murder, Till's swollen and disfigured body is found by two boys who are fishing in the Tallahatchie River. His head was very badly mutilated as he had been shot above the right ear, an eye was dislodged from the socket, and there was evidence that he'd been beaten on the back of the hips, and his body was weighted by a fan blade which had been fastened around his neck with barbed wire. He was nude, but was wearing a silver ring with the initials LT, being Lewis Till, his father, and May 25th, 1943, carved in the ring. His face was completely and utterly unrecognizable due to the trauma and having been submerged in water for three days. Moe's right, his uncle, then calls, was called to the river to identify Till. Uh, he then sees the silver ring that he was wearing. He removes it and uh, is returned to right and next passed on to the DA as evidence in the case. At this point, we get to see a very 21st century type uproar with the death of a young black man, and we see it back in the 1950s. There's a three-paragraph story printed in the Greenwood Commonwealth that is then quickly picked up by other Mississippi newspapers. They're all reporting on his death and when the body was found, and the next day, a picture is printed with his mother and him, um from the previous Christmas, showing them smiling together, and that appears in the Jackson Daily News and the Vicksburg Evening Post. There are editorials and letters to the editor express, printed expressing shame at the people who had caused Till's death. One of those did read, quote, Now is the time for every citizen who loves the state of Mississippi to stand up and be counted before hoodlum white trash brings us to destruction, unquote. The letter said that Negroes were not the downfall of Mississippi society, but whites like those in white citizens' councils that had condoned such violence as had befallen a guy like Emmett Till. 
Till's body was then clothed, packed in lime, placed into a pine coffin, and prepared for burial. Now, Roy Till's mom, Mamie, uh, refused to have him buried immediately in Mississippi, and we're going to get into that in a second. But he, but or, excuse me, she made sure that he was going to be returned to Chicago, where he would be buried. Now, later on, uh, Mississippi's governor Hugh White deplores the murder, asserting that the local authorities should pursue a vigorous prosecution. He then sends a telegram to the national offices of the NAACP, promising a full investigation and assuring them that Mississippi does not condone such violence. Uh, Other Delta residents in the Money Mississippi area and all around Mississippi themselves, both black and white, are also trying to, like, sort of distance themselves from the whole thing. And the LaFleur County Deputy Sheriff John Cothran states that, quote, the white people around here feel pretty mad about the way that poor little boy was treated and they won't stand for this, unquote. Then, of course, as things always go, you get discourse on the other side. Uh, does that sound familiar? Uh, there are good people uh, on both sides of the issue. Does that sound familiar? Robert B. Patterson, executive secretary of the segregationist White Citizens Council, laments Till's death by repeating his own view that racial segregation policies were actually to provide for black safety and that their efforts were being neutralized by the NAACP. How dare they? We're just segregating them for their own safety. In response, the NAACP Executive Secretary Roy Wilkins then characterizes the incident as a lynching, which it was, and said that Mississippi was trying to maintain white supremacy through murder. He then goes on and says that, quote, there is in the entire state no restraining influence of decency, not in the state capitol, among the daily newspapers, the clergy, nor any segment of the so-called better citizens, unquote. Uh, His mom, Mamie, then tells a reporter that she would seek legal aid to help law enforcement find her son's killers and that the state of Mississippi should share the financial responsibility. And speaking of Till's mom, Mamie then takes his body up to the uh, A.A. Rayner funeral home in Chicago. Upon arrival, uh, they insist on viewing it to make sure that it's positively him, later stating that the stench of it was noticeable from two blocks away. Can you imagine that shit? This kid had basically been barely embalmed at all. He had been killed, murdered terribly, thrown into a river with a with a fan with barbed wire around his neck to keep him underwater. He's found later and then sent up to Chicago at his mother's insistence. So this entire time, he was basically just rotting there. I mean, the most unceremonial, awful thing to do to a 14-year-old kid who didn't deserve it. She then decides, his mom, to have an open casket funeral, saying... There was just no way I could describe what was in that box. No way. And I just wanted the world to see. So then later, tens of thousands of people lined the streets outside of the mortuary to view his body. And then days later, thousands more attend his funeral at Robert's Temple Church of God in Christ. Now, photographs, and I will post one on the page, even though it's kind of gross. Photographs of his mutilated corpse circulated around the country notably appearing in the Chicago Defender, which we had mentioned in the Harlem Hellfighters uh, episode as one of the premier black newspapers in Chicago, and Jet Magazine. And this generated intense, insane public reaction. I mean, wouldn't it with you if you saw the pictures of this boy having been beaten and shot to death and then just dragged around like crazy and he was just a kid? Wouldn't it turn up the fire in your heart as well. 
Time magazine later selected one of Jet's photographs showing Mamie Till over the mutilated body of her dead son as one of the 100 most influential images of all time. I will also post that picture uh, in the group when this episode is released. They said, quote, For almost a century, African Americans were lynched with regularity and impunity. Now, thanks to a mother's determination to expose the barbarousness of their crime, the public could no longer pretend to ignore what they couldn't see. That's the biggest thing that was really going to turn this this whole public opinion of this case around, was that Mamie, his mom, had the open casket funeral for everybody to see what had happened to her son, what had happened when he went to the South from Chicago and basically was horribly and terribly murdered, you know, for apparently crimes that he had committed against a white woman, crimes that weren't even actually crimes. Now, we can talk all day about how inappropriate things like catcalling and wolf whistling and all that stuff are, but none of those things deserve the penalty of death, especially in such a brutal way that it befell a kid, a kid, by the way, like Emmett Till. And, of course, this is where things continue to be really fucking screwy. As news of Emmett Till's death spreads around from, you know, the the local papers in Mississippi to the bigger papers in Mississippi to the publications and newspapers in Chicago and eventually across the entire United States, Chicago Mayor Richard Daley and Illinois Governor William Stratton then urge Mississippi Governor White, who we talked about before, that he see that justice be done. Well, then this fucking changes the tone completely in Mississippi. All of a sudden, Mississippi, who had been totally for finding justice for Emmett Till, all of a sudden start falsely reporting claims that there are riots in the funeral home in Chicago and that angry white people and angry black people are going to head down south and storm into Mississippi. Um, pictures of Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam are, are, in, are put into newspapers. They're smiling. They're wearing military uniforms. Uh, Carolyn Bryant is written about uh, uh, with her beauty and her virtue being extolled. Um, T.R.M. Howard, a local businessman, a surgeon, and a civil rights proponent, um, says that a second civil war will happen if the slaughtering of Negroes is allowed. Um this new sort of xenophobic brand in the South starts to become really strong then in Mississippi, where white people were urged to reject the influence of, quote, northern opinion and agitation, as it always is. The damn northern Yankees trying to ruin our way of life and ruin the, uh, our ability to just uh, beat up black people as we see fit. Um, Eventually, the Tallahatchie, remember the Tallahatchie River was uh, where he, where Emmett Till was thrown into with the fan around his neck. The Tallahatchie County Sheriff Clarence Strider initially having positively identified Till's body and stated that the case against uh, J.W. Millam and Roy Bryant was pretty good, then later says on September 3rd that he actually has doubts that the body pulled from the Tallahatchie River was even Tills. So the dude who was like, yeah, this is totally him, a few days later was like, oh, I'm not sure actually if this is actually him. Well, okay. He then speculates that the boy was still alive. Another man then suggests that the recovered body had actually been planted by the NAACP, a cadaver stolen by TRM Howard, who we mentioned before, who they said colluded to place Tills' ring on the body. 
Strider then changes his accounts after comments were published in the press, denigrating the people of Mississippi, later saying, the last thing I wanted to do was defend those Peckerwoods, but I just had no choice about it. So all in all, then Roy Bryant and J.W. Millen, the two white men, were indicted for murder. The grand jury's prosecuting attorney, Hamilton Caldwell, was not confident that he could get a conviction in a case of white violence against a black male accused of insulting a white woman. What a what a what a fucking crime! Uh, uh, uh Mr. Till, uh, Sands accused of insulting a white woman. Why a white woman? Uh, oh, oh my stars! We we must find a way to convict these two uh, upstanding military uniformed men and Roy Bryant and J. W. Willem. It's just insane to me to think that that was literally the attitude, but it was. A local black newspaper was surprised at the indictment and praised the decision. Go, oh, oh, wow. Somebody actually thought that maybe a white person could be held accountable for their murder of a black person. There were high-profile comments published in northern newspapers and by the NAACP that were concerned that were a concern of the prosecuting attorney, which is Gerald uh, Chatham, who worried that his office would not be able to secure a guilty verdict despite the compelling evidence. Having limited funds, Roy uh, Bryant and J.W. Millam initially had difficulty in finding, finding attorneys to represent them, but five attorneys at a Sumner Law firm offered their services pro bono or for free. Their supporters placed uh, collection jars in stores and other public places in the Delta, the Money, Mississippi area, and they gathered eventually ten grand for the defense. So then the trial of Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam then begins in a county courthouse in Sumner, Mississippi. When the trial begins, a young black man named Frank Young arrives to tell them that he knew of two witnesses to the crime, being Levi Tutite Collins and Henry Lee Loggins, uh, who are black employees, obviously, of Leslie Millam, J.W.'s uh, brother, uh, in whose shed that Till was beaten the shit out of. Um, unfortunately, Sheriff Strider had booked them into the Charleston, Mississippi jail to keep them from testifying, something that would probably prove uh, to be the downfall of this trial. Now, this trial was held in September of 1955 and lasted for five days. Attendees remember that the weather was really, really hot out. Uh, the courtroom was filled to capacity with 280 spectators and, ironically, black attendees sat in segregated sections. Press from major national newspapers were attending the trial, including those aforementioned black publications. Black reporters were also required to sit in the segregated black section and away from the white press. Sheriff Strider, the man who had booked the uh, Levi Tutat Collins and Henry Lee Loggins into the Charleston, Mississippi jail to keep them from testifying, uh, would often welcome black spectators coming back from lunch with, the che- with a cheerful, hello, inwards. I mean, I, I can only imagine Dave Chappelle in that role just saying that kind of shit. Uh, some visitors from the North found that the court to be run almost surprisingly informally. Jury members were allowed to drink beer on duty, and many white male spectators wore handguns. Holy Shit. There you go. There's a Southern court for you. So the defense, being the defenders of uh, Bryant and Millam, sought to cast doubt on the identity of the body pulled from the river. That was really their only defense is, hey, this was not Emmett Till. Therefore, these guys could not have committed whatever crime they are being uh, accused of. They said they said that it could not be positively identified 
and they questioned whether Till was actually dead at all. Remember the aforementioned random uh, conspiracy theory of the planted cadaver with the ring on it. The defense also asserts that although Bryant and Millam had taken Till from his great uncle's house, this fact was not under dispute that they had released him that night, as they had claimed. The defense attorneys attempted to prove that Mose Wright, who was addressed as Uncle Mose by the prosecution and Mose by the defense, could not identify Bryant and Millam as the men who took Till from his cabin. They noted that only Millam's flashlight had been used in use that night and no other lights in the house had been turned on. Millam and Bryant had identified themselves to Wright that evening that they took Till, which Mose uh, said he had only seen Millam clearly. Wright's testimony was considered remarkably courageous. It may have been the first time in the South that a black man had testified to the guilt of a white man in court and ended up living to tell the tale. Emmett Till's mother, Mamie Till Bradley at the time, testified that she had instructed her son to watch his manners in Mississippi and that should a situation ever come to his being asked to get on his knees to ask the forgiveness of a white person that he should do it without a thought. Now, the defense then questions her identification of her son in the casket in Chicago and a $400 life insurance policy she had taken out on him. So they're trying to cast doubt on the fact that Emmett Till was dead at all. They kind of think that, oh, we're just going to turn full bore, shoulder first, into the conspiracy theory that it's a, it's a fake Emmett Till and that, you know, his mom, Mamie, was actually, you know, taking out a life insurance policy, much like um, one of our other previous episodes where guys were trying to uh, commit insurance fraud on a, a, a poor Irish man. They probably figured that they could, you know, pin at least a shadow of a doubt that that was something that was, that was uh, uh, possibly going on. So while the trial is progressing, the LaFleur County uh, Sheriff George Smith, who had questioned um, Bryant and Millam on that night, uh, TRM Howard and several reporters, both black and white, they attempted to locate uh, Collins and Loggins, the two men who were locked up in the uh, Charleston, Mississippi jail. They couldn't find them, but they did find three witnesses who had seen Collins and Loggins while Millam and Bryant were on Leslie Millam's property. Now, two of them testified that they had heard someone being beaten, blows, and cries. One testified actually so quietly that the judge kept ordering him several times to speak louder, speak up, speak up, he said. And the man cried out, Mama, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Now, Judge Curtis Swango, who was the judge uh, presiding over this case, allowed Carolyn Bryant, the woman aforementioned in in the story, the, the one being grabbed, allegedly, by Emmett Till, he allowed her to testify, but not in front of the jury, after the prosecution objected that her testimony was uh, irrelevant to Till's abduction and murder. It doesn't really matter because her testimony was probably leaked to the jury. In any case, the jury that was extremely sympathetic to the guys being prosecuted. So you have on one side the prosecution trying to pin murder on Bryant and Millam, and you have the defense basically trying to get these two off, mostly by way of conspiracy, but really in whatever way they can. And one of the ways they wanted to do it was to have Carolyn Bryant testify against um, against you know Emmett Till or, or you know tell her version of the story, the version that we had heard uh, up to the point where Emmett had been lynched and murdered. 
uh, the judge was like, nope, that's bullshit because, A, it's irrelevant and you're not going to do it. But, you know, she still did testify in front of him, just not in front of the jury. But unfortunately, the jury probably still got wind of what she said, which would just, you know, further solidify how this was going to go. Sheriff Strider, Mr. Mann, then testified for the defense in his theory that Till was still alive. There they go again. And that the body retrieved from the river was white. Okay. Okay. A doctor from Greenwood then stated on the stand that the body was too decomposed to identify and therefore had been in the uh, water too long for it to have possibly been Emmett Till. So here we go. The, the trial's going poorly for the prosecution. The defense is using just the bullshittiest of defenses, but somehow it's fucking working. In the concluding statements, one prosecuting attorney said that what Till did was wrong, but that his action warranted a spanking not a murder. There's the prosecutor saying, hey man, even if Till did everything that you guys said, was it seriously worth killing the kid? And if you did kill him, you're a motherfucker. Truly. Gerald Chatham passionately calls for justice and mocks the sheriff and doctor's statements that allude to this entire ridiculous fucking conspiracy that they were pushing. The defense, on the other hand, was stating that the prosecution's theory of the events the night Till was murdered were improbable, okay, and said the jury's forefathers would turn over in their graves if they convicted Bryant and Millam. Only three outcomes at this time were possible in Mississippi for a capital murder trial. You either got life imprisonment, the death penalty, or you were acquitted. That's it, one, two, or three. On September 23rd, by the way, the all-white, all-male jury in which both women and blacks had been banned from participating in, acquitted both defendants after a 67-minute deliberation where one juror said, quote, if we hadn't stopped to drink pop, it wouldn't have even taken that long, unquote. So cool. Literally all the evidence points in the direction, despite the fact that there were a bunch of assholes testifying for the innocence of these men, there was evidence to be had that these guys committed their crime Yet in the ultra-racist South, where these guys say our forefathers would turn over in their graves if they convicted these two white men, decide not to convict these two white men. And can we even really say that we're all that surprised that this sort of thing happened in the extremely racist, segregated South at the time? In fact, in November of 55, so just a couple of months later, a grand jury then declined to indict Bryant and Millen for kidnapping, even though they literally said that they kidnapped Till. They literally said, hey, we went to Moe's Wright's house, we took Emmett Till, and then we did what we did. And then the grand jury's like, nah, they didn't really kidnap him. It's like, what the fuck is this? It's just the, the dumbest, stupidest lack of justice in a story that maybe I've ever seen in my entire life. And to add to the insane injustice of it all, these men, Brian and Millam, protected against a double jeopardy conviction, then struck a deal with Look magazine in 1956 to tell their story to a journalist named William Bradford Huey for between somewhere between $3,600 and $4,000. The interview took place in the law firm of the attorneys who had defended Brian and Millam originally. Huey did not ask the questions Bryant and Milliam's own attorneys did. Neither attorney had heard their clients' accounts of the murder before. There you go. According to Huey, 
the older Milliam, J.W. Milliam, was more articulate and sure of himself than the younger Roy Bryant. Milliam had admitted to shoot, had admitted, here you go, to shooting Till, and neither of them believed they were guilty or that they had done anything wrong. Like killing a black kid is is to them is is to doing something wrong as like forgetting to put the dishes away. Like, ah, I don't think we really did anything wrong. We just shot that black kid. Like, that's what is going through their head. So reaction to this interview that he publishes is extremely insane and explosive. These guys' brazen admission to that they had murdered Till caused fucking civil rights people to just, like, lose their minds and push the federal government harder to then investigate this case. Till's murder contributes then to the Congressional passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1957. This authorized the United States Department of Justice to intervene in local law enforcement issues when individual civil rights were being compromised. That would have been really nice for a man like Emmett Till being beaten to death and then shot in the back of a pickup truck. In Huey's interview, in which Millam and Bryant said that they had acted alone, overshadowed inconsistencies in earlier versions of their stories. And as a consequence, details about Collins and Loggins, the two men locked up, and others who had possibly been involved in Till's abduction and murder were forgotten, according to some historians. So really, the focus of the conversation becomes more about these two men. And honestly, that's the way it should be because these are the two fucking assholes who pulled something like this off. So after Bryant and Millam admitted to Mr. Huey that they had killed Emmett Till, the support base for these two men uh, eroded pretty terribly in Mississippi because even even after somehow, somehow getting past the justice system twice and getting away with fucking murder, at some point, them admitting they actually did it was still unsupportable by the vast majority of the people of Mississippi. Many of their former friends and supporters, including a lot of people who had contributed to their defense fund in the first place, ended up cutting them off. Black people would boycott their shops, which then went bankrupt and closed. Good. And banks refused to grant them loans to plant crops. Good. After struggling to secure a loan and find someone who would rent to him, Milliam then managed to secure 217 acres and a $4,000 loan to plant cotton. Oh, here we go. But blacks refused to work for him. He was then forced to pay whites higher wages. How ironic. Eventually, they both relocate to Texas, Milliam and Bryant, but unfortunately, their infamy in being fucking murderers followed them there, and they continued to generate extreme animosity from locals. Good. Several, Several years later, excuse me, they returned to Mississippi, where Milliam found work as a uh, heavy equipment operator, it looks like, but ill health forced him into retirement. Over the years, he was tried for offenses like assault and battery, writing bad checks, and using a stolen credit card. He died of spinal cancer in 1980 at age 61. Good. Bryant, on the other hand, worked as a welder while he was in Texas until increasing blindness forced him to give up this employment. At some point, he and Carolyn Bryant, remember her, the uh, the the axis point of this all, he and Carolyn divorced, where then he then remarried in 1980. He opened up a store in Ruleville, Mississippi, much like his former store. Uh, he was convicted in 1984 and 1988 later on of food stamp fraud. How ironic. In a 1985 interview, 
he gave. He denied that he killed Till, even though he had a fucking interview like 30 years before that that said, I did definitely kill that guy. And then he said in that interview, quote, if Emmett Till hadn't got out of line, it probably wouldn't have happened to him, unquote. Jesus Christ, even this many years later, he will not give up the fact that he's a racist piece of shit. Fearing economic boycotts and retaliation. No shit, dude. Just close your fucking mouth. Bryant lived a private life and refused to be photographed or reveal the exact location of his store, explaining, quote, This new generation is different, and I don't want to worry about a bullet some dark night. Are you fucking kidding me? That must be the most ironic and ridiculous statement I think I've ever read in my entire fucking life. And I know I just said that like three minutes ago, but come on, dude. Seriously. You're the guy who you and your buddy wrangled up a 14-year-old boy, not a man, a boy, and beat him to death and shot him, tied a fucking fan to his neck with barbed wire and threw him in a goddamn river, then said your entire lives, oh, I don't know if you really did anything wrong. And then you got the gall to come out and say, oh, this generation is different. I don't want to worry about a bullet some dark night. Bitch, you murdered somebody. He then died of cancer in 1994 at the age of 63. Fucking good. Great. Till's mother then remarries uh, a man named Gene Mobley. So this is Mamrie. Uh, becoming a teacher and changing her surname to Till Mobley. So Mamie Till Mobley. She continues to educate people about her son's murder. In fact, in 1992, she had an opportunity to listen while Roy Bryant was interviewed about his involvement in Till's murder. Bryant was completely unaware that she was listening, and he had asserted that Till had ruined his life, expressed no remorse, of course, and said, quote, Emmett Till is dead. I don't know why he can't just stay dead. The toughest thing to see, though, is something that happened extremely recently. Extremely recently. So in 2017, that recently, author Timothy Tyson released details of a 2008 interview he had with Carolyn Bryant, during which she disclosed that she had fabricated the most sensational part of her testimony. Tyson said that, quote, she said with with respect to the physical assault on her or anything menacing or sexual that that part isn't true. She also said, quote, nothing the boy did could ever justify what happened to him. The 72-year-old Bryant said she could not remember the rest of the events that occurred between her and Till in the grocery store. Tyson also recalled that Roy Bryant, the husband at the time, had been verbally abusive toward Carolyn and that she was frightened of her husband. Bryant also described Millam as domineering and brutal and not a kind man. An editorial in the New York Times later says, This admission is a reminder of how black lies were sacrificed to white lies in places like Mississippi. It also raises anew the question of why no one was brought to justice in the most notorious racially motivated murder of the 20th century despite an extensive investigation by the FBI. So it's just fucking insane. Like, the woman whose testimony uh, to her friends at that grocery store that day in 1955 you know, led to the brutal murder of a 14-year-old boy from Chicago who didn't even know what the fuck was going on, a kid who had a stuttering problem, who could never have said what he said to her the way she said it, but of course nobody gave a shit because it was a beautiful white woman and her word against the word of a black 
you know, black kid or black man to them because, oh, in, in, in no way did they think that some little black boy was doing this. Oh, it was definitely a black man. He was definitely a big, strong man accosting our, our, our beloved uh, virtue extolled white woman in Carolyn Bryant. And then she carries this fucking lie with her, even though she knows what happened to him. And she knows that her fucking husband and friend got off, got away with murder. She carries this her entire fucking life until very recently. She's finally like, oh, my God, I feel so guilty. I feel so fucking guilty. Um, None of this really ever happened. Bitch, it's 60 years too fucking late. That's That's nonsense. I hope you carry that guilt until your dying day because you got... A boy, an innocent boy, murdered brutally. His life ended prematurely for no other reason other than the fact that you thought that that was what people wanted to hear from you. Why the fuck even make something up like that? It just blows my mind. I can't even believe that that's the thought process that goes through somebody's head. But hey, that's America in the 50s, right? That's the American South in the 50s. And that's why it's so important to understand that these things did happen so that we could hopefully look back and go, wow, what a bunch of nonsense, terrible bullshit. Maybe we shouldn't do shit like that anymore. And then we can get away from doing things like that. So what kind of positive really came from this? There was some positive. I mean, it's tough to say that anybody dying, you know, any innocent person being killed for no reason ever or was positive. But in the case of Emmett Till, you know, his death, his murder was a true spark for the civil rights movement in the 50s and in the 60s, in the 60s, excuse me. In fact, in Montgomery, Alabama, Rosa Parks attended a rally for Emmett Till, also led by Martin Luther King Jr. After that, she soon you know, refused to give up her seat on that segregated bus that day to a white passenger. The entire time... Uh, She was going through that situation. Parks later said that when she did not get up and move to the rear of the bus, quote, I thought of Emmett Till and I just couldn't go back. In 1989, Emmett Till was included among the 40 names of people who had died in the civil rights movement. They are listed as martyrs on the granite sculpture of the Civil Rights Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. Later in the year 2000, in Selma, Alabama, on the 35th anniversary of the march over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, his mother, Mamie Till Mobley now, attended and later wrote in her memoirs, quote, I realized that Emmett had achieved the significant impact in death that he had been denied in his life. Even so, I had never wanted Emmett to be a martyr. I only wanted him to be a good son. Although I realize all the great things that have been accomplished largely because of the sacrifices made by so many people, I found myself wishing that somehow we could have done it another way, unquote. It's it's just, I mean, that's that's heartbreaking. The mother who made an open casket funeral to show the world the brutality that had been, you know, befallen on her son, you know, goes to this demonstration and all she wanted was her son to still be living, her son to still have made an impact on the world but didn't have to die to do it. Because what mother hopes that, you know, this incredibly important civil rights movement, you know, sort of thing, what mother hopes that something like that happens but that, you know, I I hope that my son gets to definitely be killed in a terrible, awful way, you know, alone and scared by himself 
a thousand miles from home to make this happen. Of course she didn't. All she wanted was her son with her, her son to be alive. And that's the true, real tragedy of this entire tale, is that Emmett Till was murdered for no good fucking reason on the flimsy testimony of a woman. And not until years and years later did everybody really start to get any sort of justice or comeuppance about it. But thankfully, Emmett Till's death did help spark the important civil rights movement in America. And on that note, your non-sequitur fact of the week. It's thought that the real Lone Ranger was actually a black man named Bass Reeves. Reeves had been born a slave but escaped west during the Civil War where he lived in what was then known as Indian Territory. He eventually became a deputy U.S. marshal, was a master of disguise, an expert marksman, had a Native American companion, and rode a silver horse. There you go. Truly very interesting. And that, my friends, is the end of episode number four of our second season of the Knowledge on the Couch podcast. I hope you learned something uh, interesting that you didn't know before, and I hope this episode really taught you something that that shows that the injustices that we're seeing today are nothing new, and uh, in fact, we see them all the time in history, and that the best thing we can do is to look introspectively into our pasts and, and realize that we can change for the better, but we have to try to do so first. You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. You can follow the show on Twitter at The Couch Pod. You may find us on Facebook. Search Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. You will find us there. You can download this show anywhere you find podcasts. Make sure you uh, uh, leave us a review um, and rate the show five stars. It really helps the show out. It kind of pushes us up and gets us exposed to more people wanting to to listen to a history podcast and and hopefully when they do get to it, they they enjoy what they hear. If you know of somebody who would like a, a new podcast to listen to, or they're looking for something new and interesting, suggest the show to them. Um, I'm more than more than happy to be doing that for for anybody who wants it. Um, you can email the show knowledgecouch at gmail if you have you know any desire to communicate in uh, 1995 ways. Uh, I did want to shout out. Um, the All Things Action video cast from my friend Aaron and his son Raiden are typically the two who are doing the show, but there are other formats of the show. I just wanted to give them a shout out because it's uh, every you know good turn deserves another. He shouted out my show on his, and of course I owe him that much from my own angle. So go search the All Things uh, Action video cast on YouTube and on Facebook. You will find it there. They talk uh, mostly mostly in the realm of uh, comic books and movies, but they kind of you know tend to go wherever they kind of feel the 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 show is going for them. So I'm hoping one day we'll have a little bit of a crossover episode, and I'll be able to speak to my own ridiculous nerdy knowledge on. Uh, comic books and movies on their show someday but in the meantime go check them out it's very interesting it's very fun and I enjoy it a great deal 
you'll be getting a new episode, obviously, next Friday. Uh, we'll start our next series uh, of what we're going to do. But you'll also get a mini episode in between time, and it'll just be, like I said last week, it'll just be me talking about what we're going to do. It'll be a little mini episode of what we're going to do, maybe some questions and, and just some fun stuff. It's just going to be a real quick me talking to myself sort of thing before we go on and on with the rest of the show. So until then, guys, thank you so much for listening. Um, tell your friends about the show. Live long and prosper.